You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. For just a moment, let me take you back to 1679. The Third Anglo-Dutch War had just ended. The West Indies were crawling with privateers who were suddenly out of work. Near Jamaica, a fleet of those privateers met to sit in council on what they should do next— among this council of captains, you would find men like John Coxon, Bartholomew Sharp, and Robert Allison. They chose to follow in the footsteps of Henry Morgan and assault the rich cities on the Spanish Main. Their first assault was on Portobello, in which we would find Robert Allison in the vanguard. After that first successful raid, Coxon and Sharp decided to march across the Isthmus and raid Panama itself. That marks the beginning of the first Pacific adventure. But Robert Allison and a few others decided to remain in the West Indies. They didn't go. And back when we talked about the Pacific adventures, that's where we left Captain Allison. That was more or less the end of his piratical career. He made good on one raid and decided to invest that money elsewhere. But it's not the end of his story, nor his connection to piracy. By the mid-1680s, Allison had settled down in New York. 
Now, his activities there aren't super well recorded, but we do know that in 1689 he opposed Jacob Leisler's rebellion. We could probably extrapolate from that that he took part in the 1688 rebellion against Edmund Andros and the Dominion of New England. But beyond that, we'd just have to assume. Probably, he was one of those smugglers that was running goods more or less illegally between French Louisiana, Tortuga, Nassau, Carolina, and New York. By the time Benjamin Fletcher became governor, Allison was among the cadre of smugglers and privateers that worked for Fletcher, alongside Frederick Phillips and Adam Baldrige. Now, we've talked a great deal about this international slave trading conspiracy, but there's one element to that conspiracy that we haven't talked about too much, mostly because we don't know that much about it. And that would be the Dutch. It's beyond dispute that there was a lot of Dutch financial backing for this worldwide piratical conspiracy. I mean, Frederick Phillips was Dutch. But it's kind of tough to pin down exactly who was involved when. There's two big reasons for this. First, when the English finally do get around to prosecuting the conspirators, mostly they didn't arrest the Dutch nationals. Frederick Phillips probably got the worst of it, as he was an English subject at the time, but even he didn't spend much, if any, time in jail. Most of the investors, though, were Dutch merchant firms, and those aren't English subjects. And unless they're incredibly stupid about how they invest this money, there's very little way to prosecute them. But even if there were sufficient evidence, I mean, these are some of the richest people in the world. It could be politically and physically dangerous to arrest them. But Dutch pirates, though, you can arrest those. Some of them, anyway. Three in particular come into our story here. In 1697, Robert Allison traveled to St. Mary's Island to conduct some business with Adam Baldrige. But he wasn't in command of the ship this time. He sailed on board the sloop Fortune, underneath Captain Thomas Moston. Now, we've mentioned this voyage before. When Captain Moston and the Fortune arrived at St. Mary's Island, John Hoare was at St. Mary's with Abraham Samuel, his quartermaster, on board the John and Rebecca. Captain Moston traded some supplies to Captain Hoare, but then he departed St. Mary's with Adam Baldridge on board. Now, it's unclear if their intention was to sail back to New York. You know, maybe that's why Robert Allison had been sent to, uh, to collect Adam Baldridge. Or maybe they were just off on some voyage to trade with a nearby French island, something like that. Whatever their plan was, though, after they departed... The Malagasy there on St. Mary's rose up and killed John Hoare and his men. And there's something, you know, I don't want to rehash that story, but there's something fishy about all of this. Robert Allison was listed on board the Fortune as a supercargo. That means that he was the primary reason for that voyage having taken place, which suggests that there may have been some reason for him to sail to Madagascar and collect Adam Baldridge. Not only that, Adam Baldridge elected to take all of his records with him when he left. It sounds a little bit like the conspirators back in New York maybe knew that the hammer was about to fall and wanted Baldridge to come so they could get their story straight. However, it's funny that this uprising takes place at exactly this same time. 
I don't know that Adam Baldridge had any part to play in the uprising that was soon to happen. All I'm saying is, if you're running a pirate outpost in the middle of the Indian Ocean, it might be a good idea, after you leave, to ensure that everyone who knows anything is dead. Whatever actually happened there on St. Mary's, Adam Baldridge, Thomas Moston, and Robert Allison returned to New York on board the Fortune. And here's where the Dutch enter the story. See, there were two Dutchmen present at St. Mary's at this time. They were brothers, Otto von Toole and Ert von Toole. Now, they'd been serving as pirates on board the John and Rebecca. Otto was the ship's doctor, and Ert was the carpenter. When the Malagasy rose up, though, they fled. They didn't get caught up in the massacre. Maybe they were on the ship with Abraham Samuel. Either way, they ended up taking refuge with a rival Malagasy tribe. They probably took refuge with the Betsimisaraka people, who were just to the south of St. Mary's Island. Which will matter later when Ratsimi Hollow comes in, takes over the Betsimisaraka people, and fights Abraham Samuel. But for now, Otto von Toole returned to New York. Ert von Toole, though, stuck around and got married. He had a mess of children with his Malagasy wife and built a pretty large farm, complete with a proper dock. And there he traded in, you know, anything that might come his way. This is episode 330, The Reigning Vice of the West Indies. We're going to be looking today at a number of families that are operating kind of behind the scenes of all of this golden age of piracy business. For some of them, there will be some pretty solid evidence down the line, but for others, there's nothing really concrete to link them to piracy. But there's an awful lot of circumstantial evidence. We're also going to be talking about a number of Dutch pirates and pirate-adjacent types. And... I know my Dutch pronunciation isn't great. I'm always working on it, and I always try to get as close as possible, but for whatever reason, Dutch gives me a lot of trouble. It's somehow so close to English, and specifically American English, certain dialects anyway, that whenever I'm trying to figure out how to pronounce something, you know, watching a video on it, say, I kind of feel like I'm in a bar in Milwaukee. Which is to say, it almost sounds like English, just... Not quite. So, to our Dutch listeners out there, I apologize, and I'll try to get there. If you have any suggestions, please feel free to write. And I'd like to begin today by taking a look at the background of the Van Tool clan. A lot of these families we're going to be talking about today come from money, but usually by 1700 or so, they've fallen on hard times. They still have a little bit of capital, but they don't have the influence they once did, so they have to invest that money in extra-legal trade. And the Van Tools are no different. They can trace their lineage back to a 14th century knight in the Netherlands. His descendants would form a minor branch of Dutch gentry for a couple of centuries, but in the late 1500s they had a few years of pretty serious crop failures. As such, they fell out of the landed class and back to a commoner status. At that point, they went into business. However, the late 1500s proved to be an amazing time to go into business in the Netherlands. 
the Dutch Golden Age was about to explode, and a lot of people were going to make a lot of money. And the Van Tools were no different. However, in 1662, Jan Otten Van Tool killed a man in a barroom knife fight. It was murder. He and his wife Gertrude, along with their young son Otto, had to flee for New York. New York was maybe the best place in the world for a Dutch fugitive. There were still a lot of people living there from when it had been a Dutch colony, but now that it was owned by the English, they weren't eager to prosecute Dutch nationals. And this kind of story is an incredibly common story in America. If you're American, or if you come from any country that was peopled by immigrants, look at your family history, and there's a good chance that you'll find a similar story to Jan Otten von Tool. In my own ancestry, I find at least two murderers, one religious nonconformist, she was a Quaker, and one violent political revolutionary. And that last one, the revolutionary, According to the Kaiser, he was also a murderer, but he disputed that. As far as I know, none of them got involved in piracy, but all of them did find themselves on the wrong side of the law, and then on a boat bound for America. When the Von Tools arrived in New York, they bought a worthless little piece of land in New York. It was in a run-down little part of town called Wall Street, right next to the wall, so I'm sure that was never going to become worth anything. Shortly thereafter, though, they opened up a shipwright business, outfitting and repairing ships for the New York Mariners. All of this set them up perfectly to get involved in the St. Mary's trade. And we know the story from there. Otto and Ert von Thul head to Madagascar, survive the uprising, and Ert sticks around. For now, though, I'd like to follow Thomas Moston and the fortune back to New York. When they got home, all of the drama surrounding Captain Kidd had begun to unfold. Benjamin Fletcher was in London, undergoing questioning. Lord Bellamont had taken his place in the governorship. Captain Kidd was still on the lamb, but as soon as Thomas Moston arrived with Adam Baldridge, they were arrested. Robert Allison was probably arrested as well, but I don't have any record of that. The fortune was impounded by the governor. All of this was part of Bellamont's campaign against piracy. Remember when he said, quote, I have given all the discountenance to piracy that I am capable of doing, and that is an article which raises their clamor against me in this town. They say I have ruined the town by hindering the privateers, for so they call pirates, from bringing in 100,000 pounds since my coming. End quote. The arrest of Thomas Moston and the seizure of his ship left his crew without a job. And this brings us to our next important Dutch player. His name was Hendrik van Hoven. At least... That's one of the names I have for him. Some historians, including Bennerson Little, believe that Hendrik van Hoven was the same man who would go on to become known as the notorious pirate captain, the Grand Pirate of the West Indies, Captain Hine. Now, not everybody makes that connection. 
David F. Marley in Pirates of the Americas has an entire entry on Captain Hine with no mention of Hendrik von Hoven, but I think they were probably the same person, and this discrepancy probably comes from the fact that the English had some serious problems with Dutch names. For example, Ert van Toul, spelled A-E-R-T, is almost always written in the English documents as Ort van Toul, spelled O-R-T. Now, as yet, there's no mention of this notorious pirate Captain Hein, but we do know that Hendrik van Hoven did manage to get his hands on a sloop and take a crew, probably the crew that had been on board the Fortune, south toward Tortuga. Records of their early piracies are kind of spotty. There's quite a few ships that go missing in the region at this time that are generally applied to Captain Hine, but nobody's really sure. The first solid evidence we have of Captain von Hoven comes from a letter written by the governor of Bermuda named Samuel Day. He was writing a report to the Board of Trade back in London, and he had news from a Captain John Trinningham. Trinningham was returning to Bermuda from the West Indies, and he told Governor Day all about this pirate galley that was terrorizing shipping all around the region. If we were to amalgamate all of the ships that went missing between Tortuga and New Providence Island in about an 18-month period that Hine would have been active, there may have been as many as 21 ships captured there. Now, none of these ships were particularly impressive prizes. You know, he's not capturing any Spanish treasure galleys, but he is capturing an awful lot of smaller, mostly regional trading craft. And the reason that we have so little information on what he actually did is because Captain von Hoven, or Captain Hein, focused almost exclusively on Spanish shipping. And he was known, famously, as a pirate that never left survivors to tell the tale. The Spanish, though, were aware of this rash of disappearances, and they did attribute it to Captain von Hoven. They were issuing formal diplomatic complaints to the governors of Saint-Domingue and the Bahamas, New York, Carolina, and this suggests that von Hoven was using Tortuga and Nassau as his bases of operation. Primarily Nassau, which, remember, was under the control of the Carolina colony, which might explain why it was Carolina that did something about it. They dispatched a young privateer as a pirate hunter named William Rhett. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people 
populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Imagine you're one of the sailors from the Fortune, now sailing under Captain Hine, and think about some of the experiences you've had in the last year. You're sailing to the Indian Ocean with Robert Allison on board, a real old sea dog. And that's not a short voyage. At some point, somebody who knows a little bit about who he is is going to ask him about his story, and he had a story to tell. You know, he never sailed with Henry Morgan, but I bet he told you he did. Not just Morgan, but Francois Lolonet, Roque Brasiliano, and Lawrence Prince. All about the raid on Panama, and he would tell you about the Brethren of the Coast, which he knew a little bit about. He was there, living that life in the 1670s, you know, 20, 25 years earlier. And here you are, just a little over a year later, being hunted by William Rhett. Now, you don't know that yet, and you don't even know who William Rhett is. But William Rhett, not to give too much away, is going to play a major role in the end of the Golden Age of Piracy. He's a Carolina pirate hunter who's going to be very invested in what's happening at Nassau, and he's going to take part in the Battle of Cape Fear against Steed Bonnet. So it's worth taking a moment to introduce him here today. William Rhett was born in London. In 1694, he and his wife Sarah moved to Carolina. There they established a pair of pretty large-scale plantations on which they produced mostly rice. He served in the Carolina militia as a colonel, and would go on later in his life to sit on the Council of South Carolina. But in 1698, he was still mostly just a merchant, less a politician. His little fleet would ship rice south to New Providence Island, where they had a ravenous need for rice. This was such an integral part of his business that Colonel Rhett named his flagship, a galley, the Providence. When news started filtering up to Carolina that there was a pirate causing a ruckus in his neck of the woods, the Lord's proprietor dispatched the colonel to deal with the situation. From the Board of Trade, we have a record that reads, quote, About the latter end of April last, one Captain Hind, a notorious pirate and sea rover, having lately got into a brigantine with a company of Dutch, French, and other people, came up with an English-built ship 
mounted with two and twenty guns called the Providence Galley, under the command of Captain William Rett of Carolina. Rett made a very generous defense, but was outdone and taken by the said pirate. Having taken the said ship, Hind and his mixed and divided gang fell into a mutiny. The English party prevailing, they laid hands and exercised their power on their captain, Hind, and turned him and fifteen more of his comrades on shore, in a place called the Berry Islands, about ten leagues to the leeward of Providence, allowing them there three small arms and a bottle of gunpowder. The record continues, quote, After this, one John James took upon him the command of the ship, and standing out to sea they spied a sail, which proved to be a man of war, and they chased her into Virginia, having killed her above forty men. The said pirates, James and company, have given out that they resolve to stay there and take a better ship, which lies within the capes of Virginia. I have news of several other vessels, some belonging to these islands, which have been taken by the pirates aforesaid, but cannot at present give a particular account. End quote. Now, we know that last bit, of course. If you were trying to remember how you knew Captain Hine, he was the captain against whom John James mutinied before heading to Virginia. That's what happened after William Rhett attacked. But what we didn't talk about was the fate of Captain Hine. He was marooned with the Dutch and French from his crew and were left three pistols with which to end their suffering, should it come to that. And that apparently, was that. Now, for no reason at all, let's shift gears to a very interesting man named Reed Elding. Reed Elding was born on Barbados in the 1660s to an English father and a mother of African descent. That almost certainly means she was enslaved, but Elding's father decided to do something that was a bit out of the ordinary. He accepted Reed Elding as his son, openly and legally. This was far from common, but in the colonial world it wasn't unheard of to accept a son of mixed race as your proper legal heir. Now, Reed Elding certainly had to deal with a ton of prejudice in his life, but legally he was a free subject of the English crown with all of the rights that that conferred. In 1695, he moved to Boston, where he married a woman named Hannah Pemberton. The Pemberton family were very English, very white, and just a little bit Puritan. They also had ties to another influential family in the region, the Wentworth family. And this matters because of a man named John Wentworth. John Wentworth ran something of a sugar empire, in Nassau. Now, sugar never really took off like the English hoped it would on New Providence Island, but John Wentworth gave it the old college try. Back in 1676, John Wentworth had been up for the governorship of the Bahamas. He was known as the People's Choice. But he wasn't permitted to serve by the Admiralty. The Admiralty was pretty sure he was a patron of scallywags and pirates, and suspected he would have encouraged a culture of lawlessness in Nassau, so they didn't let him take the job. But in 1697 or so, 
Reed Elding and his wife Hannah moved to Nassau where they bought a pair of sugar plantations for a very reasonable price from John Wentworth. Now, these families are colonial nobility. You know, they're wealthy people. When the Eldings had their first child, a daughter also named Hannah, they sent her back to Boston to be raised by her grandparents. And in time, the younger Hannah would marry into the Wentworth family. That branch of the family would go on to produce two governors of New Hampshire, immediately before and immediately after the American Revolution. These were fairly important people. But a lot of their money, a lot of their foundational capital, as it were, came from a deep financial interest in a piratical conspiracy that stretched from Madagascar to Nassau to Boston. So John Wentworth, and later on his son, and Reed Elding, these are important players in what's about to become the Pirate Republic at Nassau. If we were to go back to 1696, when Henry Avery and the Fancy arrived at Nassau, we would find that the governor, Nicholas Trott, quote, received him as a friend. He also welcomed in many of the officers and a few other crewmen from the Fancy who decided to settle down there at Nassau. Now, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that with these pirates came a huge infusion of gold and silver from the Mughal Empire, but right about that same time, completely coincidentally, there was a boom in building at Nassau. A contemporary historian who was in Nassau at the time wrote, quote, By this time, the town of Providence was grown so considerable that it was honored with the name of Nassau. Before Mr. Trott's government expired, there were 160 houses, so that it was as big as the cities of St. James and St. Mary's in Maryland and Virginia. In the town of Nassau, there was a church in Mr. Trott's name, and he began a fort in the middle of it, which, with his house, made a square. End quote. It's also worth mentioning that he owned Hog Island, the, uh, the long spit of land that protected the harbor at Nassau. But he's saying here that Nassau Town was as large as Jamestown, or St. Mary's, which was at this point the capital of Maryland. It was not a small town, not in respect to other colonial townships anyway. Once Nicholas Trott's tenure was up, though, Nicholas Webb, his successor, allegedly appointed a number of, quote, Red Sea men into positions of power in the Bahamas. He made a man named John Warren, Attorney General of the Bahamas. John Warren allegedly was one of Henry Avery's crew. Another Red Sea man named Matthew Middleton was named governor of one of the smaller islands in the Bahamas, so kind of a mayor, you know, a sub-governor. All of this made Governor Webb a very suspicious figure to the Board of Trade. And Webb knew it. You know, he knew this didn't look good, but I'm sure he owed those men some favors. However, he tried to rebrand himself as kind of a staunch anti-pirate governor. In 1699, James Kelly arrived on a sloop after escaping to Mughal prison and raiding with Robert Culliford for a few months. You may remember James Kelly as the pirate who was convicted after it was discovered he had had a certain 
delicate part of his anatomy removed in a Mughal prison. When Governor Webb got word that James Kelly had arrived in the region, he issued a letter of mark to Reed Elding to sail out and hunt him down. Elding put to sea and chased James Kelly all the way from the Bahamas to Boston, but he never managed to catch him. James Kelly was intercepted by one of Bellomont's agents near Boston, which left Reed Elding empty-handed. Which wasn't great. You know, he was supposed to return home with a commandeered pirate ship and, hopefully, a hold full of pirated cargo. But now he had nothing. However, when Reed Elding returned to Nassau, he had a ship in tow called the Bermuda Merchant. Apparently, according to Elding anyway, he spotted the Bermuda merchant up near Massachusetts skulking around and being vaguely suspicious. He considered this reason enough to consider her a pirate, and since he was on a mission of pirate hunting, he captured the Bermuda merchant. Now, the owners of the Bermuda merchant were law-abiding Bermuda merchants, and they accused Reed Elding of piracy, of having feloniously seized their ship and put their crew to the sword. This was a legal dispute that took a couple of years to iron out, and it really dragged Reed Elding's name through the mud. Eventually, it would be settled, mostly quietly, with a large cash settlement. But this did nothing at all to alleviate the suspicions that had fallen on Governor Nicholas Webb. Webb realized that he looked even worse than he had before, and he knew that he was likely not long for the office. So he appointed Reed Elding as his lieutenant governor. Soon enough, the order to remove Nicholas Webb did come down from the Board of Trade. And a couple of weeks later, the Board of Trade wrote to the Lord's proprietor in Carolina a letter that read, quote, we understand Governor Webb has left you without any order from us, but hope he has observed his instructions in appointing a deputy. We expect he and you shall act according to law and justice, discouraging vice, especially piracy, the reigning vice of the West Indies, which, if not rooted out, will destroy all commerce. End quote. To paraphrase, they're telling the Lord's proprietor that they'd better get somebody in office who's not going to act like the last two governors and encourage piracy. Now, there are a few other pieces of interest in that letter. For example, the Board of Trade granted two parcels of land to a man who was going to build whaling stations there. And he did, but in a whaling stations require docks, and he built those docks. But in about 15 years, those two whaling stations were going to be notorious pirate haunts. Those two whaling stations were to be found on Abaco Island and Andrews Island. Now, you know Abaco Island, mainly because that's where Edward Kenway stopped to hunt iguana for his assassin bracers. You know Andrews Island because that's where Kenway met with James Kidd to discuss raiding a nearby Spanish plantation. The Board of Trade also had some suggestions about how to minimize smuggling in the region and to do away with prostitution on New Providence Island. Neither of those things would work, of course, but, you know, they knew it was going on. Still, they hoped that Webb had appointed a deputy governor that would discourage vice but he had not. 
Instead, he appointed Reed Elding. The Board of Trade considered Reed Elding, quote, a known pirate for his capture of the Bermuda merchant. But then Elding went even a step farther than that. He fired the local admiralty judge and appointed a known Red Sea pirate in his place, a guy named Dalton. But then he appointed his own brother-in-law as the Nassau Marshal. Now, his name was Parker, and that's the only name we have. But the Admiralty considered Parker, quote, one of the chief of Every's men, end quote. Now, I don't know who this Parker was exactly, but if he was Elding's brother-in-law, that means that his wife's family tied to the Wentworths, remember, was also tied to Henry Every. Now, I'm not sure how that could be, since her name definitely wasn't Parker, so it all seems a little bit suspect to me, but that's at least what the Admiralty believed. Now, Reed Elding had, at this point, done exactly what his predecessor had done, appointed two known Red Sea pirates to positions of authority, You've got to kind of wonder why, since he saw that didn't work out too well for Nicholas Webb. And he knew, now that he'd done that, that he was in the Admiralty's sights. So he tried to, again, make the exact same course correction that Webb had. When a known pirate was dropped on his doorstep, Governor Elding acted swiftly. This time, it was the Grand Pirate of the West Indies, Captain Hine. When he learned that Captain Hine had suffered a mutiny and been marooned on a nearby island, Berry Island, he sent a ship out to collect the notorious pirate. That ship arrived before they made use of their pistols and arrested the marooned men. When they got back to New Providence Island, the admiralty judge there, remember, a pirate, a Red Sea man, well, he assembled a court to hear the trial. And Van Hoven had two main defenses to offer. First, he said to the court, You know, I'm Dutch. Why is he being tried here in this English court? But of course, pirates are villains of all nations, and thus eligible to be tried by any nation on earth. His second argument, though, was that he had only ever attacked Spanish ships. Which was an even less convincing argument. You know, Spain may have been the old enemy of the Dutch, but in the Nine Years' War, which had only just ended a couple of years back, Spain had been an ally. And it looked very much like in this war that was clearly brewing on the horizon, the War of Spanish Succession, Spain was likely to be an ally again. More to the point, no one was at war at this time. While Hendrik van Hoven had been engaging in piracy, there were no official enemies. So you don't just get to massacre Spaniards and steal their stuff that's against the law. It was clear that his arguments had failed. And it was clear he was facing the gibbet. So Captain Hine, the Grand Pirate of the West Indies, tried one last tactic. He told the court that he had buried treasure somewhere in the Bahamas, and if the court granted him a reprieve, he would lead them to it. I like to imagine that, at this point, the prosecution held a bit of a sidebar to discuss this interesting proposition. But in the end, it won him no favor. Captain Hine and his men were led to the gallows at Fort Charles. Captain Hine 
and his men were led to the gallows at Fort Charles. The nooses were affixed around their necks, the trapdoor was opened, and the men danced the hempen jig. Next time, we're going to return to the Indian Ocean. We're going to return to the story of John Bowen, Thomas White, and Nathaniel North, as they encounter a certain Dutch planter named Eert von Toole. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brilliant. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight